shouted in laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good job. Hey, can I ask for a little bit of inconvenience on your end, if I can ask you to come forward a little bit, because there's a lot of empty chairs, and this is going to make me uh, scream a little louder than I want to, even though I'm mic'd up. And... Uh, yeah, this is not my last gig. I have a wedding to do tonight, so i got to make sure that my voice is ready. Otherwise, a couple may not get married tonight. So uh, if you can come forward, that would be so wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. And what a wonderful scripture reader we had. Thank you so much. You did a great job. Um, why don't we all come together now and bow our heads in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, even though the season has now upon us where there are now cold winds. We thank you that when your saints gather, there is still the comforting warmth and the life-giving uh, gathering of your saints to strengthen our souls. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we strive to be faithful to you. As we gather together to sit under your word, we trust that it will change us. We trust that it will inform us. We trust that it will not leave us the same. So that when we leave this place and as we scatter about, in our various callings in life, we would be faithful in representing you well, that we would truly be salt and light and show the world whom we belong to and the one to whom all hope is found. Father, we ask that you would bless us with your presence and that you would speak and that you would change and transform us by the power of your words. For Lord Jesus, you have said yourself that your word is truth and it sanctifies us. And so, our God, would you change us and sanctify us, make us holy, so that we can go out into the world, extending the holiness of God through the very lives that we live out before a watching world. We ask, oh God, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Good afternoon, guys. Good to see all of you. Um, I decided to um, <laughs> make myself a little vulnerable to you this afternoon by sharing with you something that's a little bit weird about me. Uh, you know, your pastor wants to be exuding confidence in the gospel by sharing you something maybe a little bit off and off-putting, maybe, I don't know, um, but something that most of you don't know, and that is this. I like to watch 80s commercials off the internet. That's one of the things I just like to do. Yes, it's weird, I know, it's a little bit odd, you know, but I can't help it. I'm a child of the 80s. And watching those commercials remind me of a time in my childhood when things were less complicated and less rough and less stressful. And so in a way for me to relive the, the joys of my childhood, I sometimes go on YouTube and I watch a couple hours, I mean a couple minutes, 
of 80s commercials on the internet, right? I just do. And you guys know what my favorite commercial of all time was as a little child? It was the Toys R Us commercial. I don't know if any of you guys were even alive during the 80s, but for those of you who worked, do you guys remember the Toys R Us commercial? Do you guys remember the little jingle that was sung in every Toys R Us commercial? It went like this. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Do you guys remember that jingle at all? No, you're like, we weren't even alive in the 80s. Well, with the exception of a few of us, right? And all throughout my childhood, I would hear that jingle in my head, and I would sing it out loud, especially when I wanted to communicate to my parents indirectly, you know, that the new He-Man action figure came out, and I wanted to tell them, hey, let's go to Toys R Us, right? All throughout my little life, I would say that phrase over and over, I don't want to grow up, I don't want to grow up, I don't want to grow up. Now, some of you are hearing this revelation about me, and you're thinking, wow, he's right, Pastor John is weird. Maybe we should consider going to another church. But if that's what you're saying, thinking, I say unto you, be careful that you do not judge, lest you be judged. Because as the old proverb says, with every finger you point at someone, there are three pointed right back at you. Excuse me? Yeah, you heard me. Because believe it or not, the motivation that compels me to behave that way is found in each and every one of you as well. Because as odd as it is for me to go on the internet and to look up weird commercials from the 80s, that underlying motive is found in every human heart. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes entitled, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. And the whole point of this series is to look at the various things that we go through in this life that make us do this. <sighs> That make us breathe out that sigh, that breath of air that exhales out of our lungs, that reveals that we're frustrated, that we're fed up, that we're fearful, living in a world that just seems to go against us. Solomon refers to it as hebel in the Hebrew. It's translated in our English Bible as vanity or meaningless. And today, he wants to talk about an issue that causes us to sigh very frequently, and yet it's something that we're not very obvious of, and that is our yearning for the past. Our yearning for the past. One of the biggest reasons why you and I sigh so frequently is because we're constantly trying to yearn for the past. And so with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about why we yearn for the past. Then I want to talk about why it's better to hope in the future. And then I'm going to end it with how we can make this time change. Why we yearn for the past, why it's better to hope in the future, and how we can make this change of time reference. First, why we yearn for the past. Let's take another look at the first three verses of our passage, and it reads as follows. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Now, When you first read these words, you can't help but to think that Solomon sounds like a typical college freshman after taking a semester of philosophy or something, right? He just sounds so down on himself. He just sounds so sullen, so depressed. And you're like, really, Solomon? Why are you sounding so gloomy? Really, you think that the day of death is better than the day of birth? You think it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting? You think it's better that you're sorrowful than filled with laughter? Ooh. It just sounds like you've been reading too much Nietzsche or something, right? But that's not what you should be thinking. That's not what's going on here, okay? These words are not from someone who's clinically depressed or someone who is angry at the world. Excuse me. No, Solomon is speaking words of wisdom to correct a false view of reality that many of us have, okay? 
He is trying to correct a false assumption of our view of the world that so many of us believe in. And you're thinking to yourself, what view of reality is that, Pastor John? Well, he tells us down in verse 10. Let's skip on down. It says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In a more recent updated translation, uh, it says this, Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. What's Solomon talking about here? He's talking about a view of life that was very common in his day, and it is still very common today. And it's the view that says the best time in your life is when you are young. According to the people living in the time of Solomon and according to many people today, the best time in your life is the time when you are young. See, we live in a day and age that genuinely believes that the best moments of life, the best season of life, the best opportunity in life is when you are young. And this is why we yearn for the past, because it's in relation to the past that we are much younger than we are now, which means the yearning for the past is really the yearning for youth. We are living in a time and age where we yearn for youth. And I'm going to tell you now, folks, in our culture today, there is no greater yearning than our yearning for youth. This is evidenced by some of the ridiculous ways that people try to express this yearning, which in comparison to how I express it, mainly going on YouTube and watching a couple minutes of 80s commercial, looking pale in comparison. Back in 2013, Psychology Today came out with an article entitled Forever Young, America's Obsession with never growing old. And the author of this article, a social psychiatrist, puts it this way, quote, Today's culture is so obsessed with looking and acting young. It's difficult to believe that our founding fathers powdered their wigs gray in order to appear older and wiser. That's right, being old was in. No more. From hair dyes to Botox to Viagra to wrinkle creams to a plethora of surgical procedures, the race is on to remain forever young. Ads and social media portray youth as sexy, attractive, cool, and oh, so connected. Look at any magazine, movie, video game, or TV show, and it's easy to see. In 2011 alone, Americans spent $10.4 billion on cosmetic surgery. Annually, over $1.2 billion is spent on liposuction. $800 million are hair transplants, and $11 billion on vitamins and supplements. And there is no greater compliment we can pay another than to say, wow, you look so much younger. We as a culture are so obsessed with youth that we go to great lengths to either maintain or to recapture it to the point where we do some crazy, outlandish, foolish things, whether it's evasive surgery, life-threatening drugs, unhealthy dieting, or over-excessive exercising. And Solomon says that when you have this attitude of trying to maintain your youth or trying to recapture it, you end up looking like an utter sad fool. Listen to what he says in the first half of verse 1. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment. You see that word ointment? It's sometimes translated as perfume or cologne. Let me ask you guys something. Have you ever met a man over in his 40s wearing tons of cologne before? Have you ever met an elderly person in his 40s wearing cologne? Probably not. And if you have, you've probably wondered, and rightfully so, why is a guy this age wearing this much cologne? Huh? Is he having an affair? Is he still single and yet desperately trying not to be? Whatever the case, there is no sane, legitimate reason why a guy this old is spritzing himself like he's a crazy hormonal teenager. Am I right? There is something obviously wrong with that. I came across a very hilarious but a very explicit article on the Bro Bible website. Now, don't get misled by Bible there. This is not a website for Christians 
or was it created by Christians? And yet, I thought it was a hilarious parody of what Solomon is saying. Now, I can't share what exactly this guy wrote because he uses some pretty offensive language, so I had to do some creative pastoral editing. But take a listen to my cleaned-up version, the PG version, the pastor-graded version of what he says. Quote, stop. Don't do it. It's time for jerks to stop wearing cologne. You are covering your body in rubbing alcohol that's been steeped in a few sprigs of rosemary because why? It makes you smell nice? You know what else makes you smell nice? Showering and using soap like the rest of society. It's not that hard. Just vigorously scrub most of yourself with that lathery foam and you're done. Maybe it made sense in high school where every guy's sweat glands were churning 24 hours a day, making us each smell like the inside of a hockey rink. I don't know about you, but ever since I turned 17, my hormones settled down and deodorant's done the trick ever since. Do you still reek? You should go see a doctor not splurging on fire by Abercrombie. And I don't even know what fire is. Cool water was the thing back in my day, or Nautica. You're like, what? What's that? This brother, this bro, is essentially saying what Solomon is saying in our passage. And that is, when you are pursuing youth, when you're trying to hold on to it, when you're trying to recapture it, You look like a sad, pathetic fool, and he wants to challenge us not to view reality in that way, to what he doesn't want us to see of dwelling in the past, of holding on to the youth that is eventually taken away from us. Instead, he wants to challenge us to view reality in a different way. And to explain, let me go to my next point, why it's better to focus on the future. Now, in light of everything I just said, let's read one more time verses 1 to 4, where again we read, A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now again, when you read these verses, you can't help but to fixate on all of the negative words that he uses, like death mourning and sorrow to where again you almost can't help but to picture Solomon as a very sad almost suicidal very depressed kind of a person but if you remember what I just said in the first point that's clearly not what's going on so for example when he says the day of death is better than day of birth or better to go to the house of mourning the house of feasting he's not expressing himself as someone who's just given up on life like he just wants to end it all rather he's simply saying this live your life in such a way to where more people will weep and mourn because of your death than there were people celebrating on the day that you were born. One more time. Live your life in such a way to where people will weep and mourn for your death than there were people who celebrated and rejoiced over your birth. You see, here's the thing, folks, that when you were born, typically, you had a particular group of people, namely your family and their close friends, who rejoiced on the day that you were born. There was feasting. There was laughter. There was celebration, right? Well, Solomon is saying, don't settle for that. Don't settle for the only joy you bring into the world as being only coming from the day of your birth. Instead, live your life in such a way to where the joy you bring into the world far extends beyond the day you were born, far extends beyond the borders of your personal family and their friends. No, live your life in such a way to where you encounter and treat other people so that there will be more people crying, more people wailing, more people in sorrow than there were the number of people who celebrated on the day that you were born. That is what Solomon is saying. And in fact, he is just saying in his own version what a very famous Native American proverb once says. Have you heard this phrase before? It goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. 
Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. One more time. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Solomon is challenging us to view life from the complete opposite direction than what our culture tells us we are to look at. You see, our culture says, dwell on the past, yearn for the past, hold on to your youth, cling to it with all your might. And Solomon says, no, go in the opposite direction, look towards the future, go in the direction to the certainty of your death. Because when you are living in the future in mind to where you know that you will eventually die, you will come off living as a person where people will cry and weep over you more than the number of people who rejoice on the day that you were born. You know, a lot of young people today complain a lot about how uncertain their future is. You know, a lot of young people say with bitter spirits questions like, hey, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to fall in love? Am I ever going to be successful in life? Am I going to get that job? Am I going to achieve that status? And because they don't know the answer to these futuristic questions, they feel like their life is on hold, that they're in limbo, they're just stuck. And as a result, the only thing that they can do is just sigh because they just feel like they see a future and it's all fuzzy. They don't see anything clearly there. And of course, the kind of sighs that young people do today is not any typical sigh, but it's that angry sigh. You guys know the angry sigh? It's not the... Oh, but it's more like a, why, when, right? This is something that my children are pretty good at right now. They're at an age in life where they're not just going, oh, daddy. They're like, oh, daddy, why, right? The angry sigh. But listen to what Solomon says in verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. What is Solomon saying? He's saying, guys, look, young people, don't get so angry. Don't let out that angry sigh. Why? Because you don't need to know if your future has in it falling in love, getting married, being successful, having status. You don't need to know for certain about those things in regards to your future. The only things that you need to worry about about your future is that one day you will die. That's the one thing about your future you can know with absolute certainty. One day You are going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. All of us in our future, we are going to die. And so in light of that certainty, we are to live accordingly. Well, what does that even mean, Solomon? What does it mean to live in accordance to the fact that one day in the future, we are going to die? Well, to answer that question, we leave Ecclesiastes and we come to another set of words that were written by Solomon's father, King David. Listen to what David says in Psalm 90, verse 12. He says, teach us to realize the brevity of life. So that we may grow in wisdom. So that we may grow in wisdom. Interesting. Solomon's father, David, teaches us that when we are intentionally aware of the certainty of our future death, or as he puts it here, the brevity of life, it will compel you to grow in wisdom. Or if I could put it in a much more succinct way, it will compel you to grow up, to mature to develop as a person. You know, the Bible teaches us that when God created us, he created us to grow up. He created us to mature. He created us to develop as a certain person. Well, the question is, what kind of person is that? David already told us. 
God created you to grow to be wise. He didn't create you so that you could fall in love and get married and to be successful. I mean, those are wonderful things, but that's not the main point of what God wants you to do as you live in this limited time known as life here on earth. He wants you from day one to the day in which you are gone that you are growing and maturing in wisdom. Wisdom, 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 wisdom. Now think about that word for a moment, wisdom. When you think about that word, what kind of person do you picture? I'll tell you who you don't picture. You don't picture a young baby, do you? You don't picture even a young adolescent. When you think of a wise person, you don't think of that cute, cuddly little baby or that smelly teenager, right? You don't. You may think, oh, he's cute or she's charming. But the last thing that you'll ever think when you look at a young person is wise or profound or wisdom. Why? Because wisdom assumes that a person is developing and growing and maturing, which is simply another way of saying that a person who is growing in wisdom is someone who is letting go of the fully, fully, folly of holding on to youth, right? A wise person is someone who is not like the people of this world, not like what the culture says we should do. They are not holding on to the past. They're not trying to relive the glory days. No, they have moved on and they're moving forward to a life that one day will eventually end so that as they do... The product of it is that they will grow and develop and become a wise person. You see, history has shown us that the people who made this world better after they left it than the way they found it in their birth were all people of profound wisdom. All of the great people who made a positive, life-changing impact in our society are people who had some shape or form of wisdom. Leonardo da Vinci was artistically wise. Abraham Lincoln, politically wise. Martin Luther King Jr., socially wise. Einstein, intellectually wise. Steve Jobs, innovatively wise. Every person who left this world different than the way it was before they were born were people of profound wisdom, which is why Solomon says, this is why it's better to be future-minded rather than past-oriented. You see? It is better to wanting to strive and grow so that you can make some contribution through wisdom and make this world better than staying in this mindset of wanting to stay forever young to where the only attitude that you have is me, 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 mine, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. You see, that is why we need to strive to grow in future-mindedness of being focused on the future rather than dwelling in the past or trying to relive the past. It sounds wonderful. It sounds inspiring. It sounds good. So let's get to it, right? Well, not really. Because as great as this sounds, as wonderful as it is, as, as inspiring as it moves us to be, there's a problem. There's a problem. And Solomon identifies for us what that, Solo- what that problem is. He writes, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. What's he saying? Well, he's basically saying this in a nutshell. Even though we know... We should be wise people. Even though we're at an age where we should be wise already, there is a side of us that still wants to stay young. Even though we know we would be a better person for this world, even though we would be more, you know, a blessing to those around us, if we would just grow up and develop and mature and be wise, nevertheless, there's still this inner child that still wants to survive. There's still this inner child that says, no, I don't want to grow up. I still want to be young. I still want to be youthful, right? And Solomon says, look, if you're not careful, if you keep holding on to this, you eventually will end up like a person who accepts bribes or someone who will even be willing to oppress other people just so that you can hold on to your youth. And here's the thing, folks. Do not think that just because you are a Christian that you're somehow immune to this childish tendency in all of us. 
In fact, it is quite possible, in fact, I've seen it so often, even in this church, where so many people still cling to their childish ways that is expressed in how they live their Christian life. In his award-winning book, Reaching for the Invisible God, award-winning Christian author Philip Yancey shares a moment of brutal honesty in his own struggle with this. Listen to what he says in this book. Quote, Sometimes I find myself yearning for the glorious self-indulgence of infancy, when the world revolved around me, when a whimper or cry brought attention, when others met my needs with no effort on my part. And then at church or in the supermarket, I come across a baby, helpless, immobile, with little comprehension. And I realize anew that the wisdom of creation that presses us towards maturity. A child must, at some point, learn to accept the world as it is, rather than as he or she wants it to be. It's not fair, the foot-stomping lament of a child mellows into, life is not fair, the wisdom of adulthood. People vary in beauty, family background, athletic skill, intelligence, health, and wealth. And anyone who expects perfect fairness in this world will end up bitterly disappointed. Likewise, a Christian who expects God to solve all family problems, heal all disease, and thwart baldness, graying, wrinkling, presbyopia, osteoporosis, senility, and the other effects of aging is pursuing childish magic, not mature religion, end quote. See, even though many of us think that we are devout followers of Christ and we're committed to his kingdom, nevertheless, there's still something in us that constantly cries out, I don't want to grow up. I don't want to be selfless. I don't want to put others ahead of myself. I don't want to be future-oriented. I want to hold on to my youth. I want to have the carefreeness, the joy, the beauty, the life of youth. And yet as a result, you end up staying stuck in this retarded state to where you don't bring any good contribution to the world. All you care about is having more for yourself and getting the accolades and admiration of those around you for your tenacity to youth. And so the question that we're left with is, what can we do about it? Is there a way in which we can overcome this self-centered, self-absorbed tendency that is so common in our constant pursuit of youth? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, how to make this time change. Read again with me verse 11, where Solomon writes this, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Here, Solomon tells us something very astounding, and it all centers on this word inheritance. So let's focus on that word for just a moment. What does that word inheritance assume? What does the word inheritance assume? Doesn't it assume an heir? Right? Doesn't an inheritance assume an heir? You know, someone who is going to receive all the material wealth, all the blessings, all the assets that a person builds up for themselves. Usually it's this person's own child because they are literally the heir. Right? Now, for those of you who aren't parents in here, you're not going to understand this. But, I tr- but trust me when I say this. When you become parents, you will completely agree with what I'm about to say. When you have kids, you're going to realize that there is a group of people that you want to do much better than you. You know, normally when other people are doing better than us, right, we get envious, we get jealous. Well, actually, there are a group of people who will be in your life to where if they do much better than you, if they're more successful than you, you're going to be the happiest person in the world. And you know who that group of people are? Your kids, right? Your kids are going to be the only people that you want to do far better than you ever did in this world. That's the natural instinct of every parent. And here Solomon says that if you can give your children this thing as an inheritance to them, they will be far better off than you ever were. And this is something that far exceeds in value than money, than a good name, or anything else. What is it? It's wisdom. Solomon says that if you can give your children 
wisdom as an inheritance, they will receive the greatest treasure of all. But therein that begs the question, how do you do that? What does that even mean to inherit wisdom? How does a person even inherit wisdom in the first place? Well, to answer, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. And starting in verse 4, we read as follows. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstances. And then skip down to verse 11. What does he say? When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. The Apostle Paul has just told us how he escaped the universal problem of never wanting to grow up and how he was successful in putting away childish things. How did he do it? He encountered a love that was so powerful, so amazing, that he goes into great detail describing it in verse 4 to 7. It was a love that was patient, kind, never jealous, or boastful, or proud, or rude, never demanding, never irritable, kept no records of wrong, and on and on and gone. Who is he talking about? Who is he describing? He's describing Jesus Christ, right? He's describing the Jesus Christ that the gospel teaches us. What does the gospel teach us about Jesus? The gospel teaches us that God the Son came into this world as what? A little baby, right? He came into this world as a little infant, and he didn't stay a little infant, right? He didn't die as a little infant. What did he do? He grew. He matured. He developed. He grew in wisdom and stature, as, as uh, the Apostle Luke tells us in chapter 2, right? Jesus went through the trouble of being born and going through the hardship of letting go of youth and sacrificing himself and being selfless to grow into maturity. Now, if you think about that, and especially when you consider how hard it's been for many of us, for all of us to grow up, you wonder, why did Jesus do that? I mean, God could have come into this world in any shape or form. Why not come in as a full-grown man, right, and avoid all the trappings and trials and tribulations of growing up? Why go through all that pain and adversity, all the trauma, all the confusion, all the raging hormones, all the heartbreaks, all the loneliness, right? Why? Because he's trying to teach us something about himself to us, which is what? Jesus is trying to teach us the extent of his love for us. He is trying to teach us the full extent of his love for us. You know, Sarah sometimes asks me, hey, if you had a chance, would you go back in time and be a kid? No. (laughs) I look back in my years of growing up, and I know the trauma. I know the pain and the sorrows. Would I be willing to go back for my children? Uh, probably not, you know, because it's hard. It's hard to let go. It's hard to put others ahead of yourself. And yet this Jesus Christ, because his mission, his agenda was so important to him, he said, I will go and I will go from the very beginning as a youth and I will suffer and endure through the hardships, through the heartache of what it takes to grow up, to mature, to put others ahead of myself. Why? Because I want to do what Solomon talks about here in this passage. I want to leave this world more joyful through my death than the joy that I brought in when I was born. That is what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus is trying to teach us, I'm going to live my life in such a way that this world is never going to be the same after I die 
than it was when I first was born into it. And indeed, that is what the gospel teaches us. Because what does the gospel say? The gospel says that when Jesus died on the cross, he created a numerous joy for his people, for those who have faith in him, for those who repent of their sins and look to him as Lord and Master. What is that joy? It is not only the forgiveness of sins, it's not only eternal life, it's not only the power to live a life of holiness, but it's mostly God's promise and his commitment to love you. To love you with a deep, unique, personal, life-changing love. A love that does not change. A love that is always there. A love that is ancient, that is cosmic, that is forever. And when you understand this love, when you are aware that this is the love that he has, I tell you, you will stop striving for you. That inner child that's always stomping its feet metaphorically in your heart saying, I don't want to grow up, all of a sudden will go silent. Because now you've encountered a love that is far superior than any youthful bliss that this world can offer to you, as well as any admiration that comes because of it. That is what the gospel promises us. And as a result, instead of you wanting to hold on to the past, instead of you wanting to relive the glory days, you move on towards the future and you say, I need to grow. I need to mature like my great master, the king. Because the more I struggle towards growth, The more I endure through sacrifices and struggles in that process of growth, I get a better understanding of what my Jesus had to endure as he grew and struggled towards growth for me. Do you really think that Jesus wasn't wiser than us as a little infant? Of course he was. He's God. But he goes through this process to express what he is willing to do, how far he is willing to go, what sacrifice he's willing to make, what suffering he's willing to endure so that you would know how radical and how deep his love is for you. And as you participate in that suffering by you maturing and growing, you gain a deeper awareness of the full extent of his love, and therefore, your perspective of time shifts. The view of life that you chase after is no longer oriented to the past, no longer fixated on staying young or recapturing your youth. It's now moving towards a life of wisdom a life of maturity, a life of selflessness, a life where you leave the world better than the way you found it when you were born. That is what God is calling us to do. The only way you're going to do it is if you grasp the love that is motivated behind the power and the work of the gospel. See, this is how you become focused on the future. This is how you inherit wisdom. Wisdom is given to you when you have accepted the life-changing love of God in the gospel. And so my question for you this afternoon is, have you received this love? Have you accepted this love? Have you received this love that makes you a person of greater value in this world? Or have you rejected it or ignored it so that you can stay the proverbial child always stomping your feet because it's all about you? It's all about me, 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 now, 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 to where you never, ever want to My hope and prayer is that it can be said of all of us in this room that the number of people who weeped and mourned and wailed over our death far exceeded the number of people who celebrated with joy and thanksgiving on the day that you were born. Is that the kind of impact that you're going to have? Is that the kind of sorrow you're going to leave behind? Because if you do, you imitate the one to whom you shadow, which is Christ the one who left this world with death, where there was greater sorrow but yet much more joy because of what he did that resulted in his death. 
What's it going to be, NCF? What is it going to be? Are you going to be that person? Or are you going to stay that youthful, pathetic child? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we continue to struggle to live our lives in this world, and as we are living in a culture that is constantly tempting us and even compelling us to stay young, to hold on to the past, and to linger in a state of childhood or childish ways, God, we need your grace to help us to overcome that vicious spell, that deceit, that lie that says that whoever can stay young the longest is the one who's the most significant. Father, we know that there is no, <clears throat> there is no admiration for being old. There is no admiration for being considered wise, at least in the eyes of man. But Father, can you help us to shift our hearts to where the eyes of man no longer have any value or dignity for us, but that it's only in the eyes of God that we have true value and true significance. Father, many of us are now crossing into that stage of life where youth is no longer upon us, where we can no longer say we are young. And Father, many of us are mourning that. But oh God, would you change our mourning into dancing to where we would strive to grow towards wisdom, towards maturity, so that in the limited time that we have on this earth, as we consider the brevity of life, that we would indeed grow in wisdom and therefore position ourselves in such a way that we would be a source of great blessing in the world. Oh God, would it be for all of us that it can be said that more people weeped and mourned and wailed on the day of birth, excuse me, on the day of death, than there were rejoicing and celebration on the day of our birth. As it was for you, may it also be for us. For we ask all these things in your precious name.